This is Illinois Public Media, WILL and WILL-FM and HD3 Urbana. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today, August 12, 2012, here at WILL AM 580, based in beautiful Urbana, Illinois. Our guest today is the author of a new book, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy. It's a book that's sweeping the nation. It's causing a lot of talk. And we're going to talk about it for the full hour today with our guest, Chris Hayes, the author. I hope you'll join us. But before we go to our guest, let's go to NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The new Islamist president of Egypt today ordered two of his top generals to retire. President Mohamed Morsi also canceled a constitutional declaration issued by the military just before the election that had sharply curtailed the president's powers. Until now, the country's top general still held much of the power. Thousands of people are homeless in northwestern Iran after two major earthquakes yesterday. The interior minister says that at least 227 people were killed. Another 1,300 people were injured. The BBC's Peter Biles has more. The two earthquakes had struck just 11 minutes apart. Scores of villages suffered damage. Six are said to have been flattened completely. But a short while ago, Iran's interior minister announced that search and rescue operations were ending. The authorities say the emphasis is shifting to the job of getting shelter and supplies to the survivors. Iran's Red Crescent has provided thousands of tents, blankets and tons of food. One of Iran's neighbours, Turkey, has also sent aid to the border region. The BBC's Peter Biles reporting. Top Democrats and Republicans are squaring off on the Sunday talk shows over Republican Mitt Romney's choice of Paul Ryan for his running mate. Meanwhile, Romney and Ryan are on the campaign trail today. NPR's Allison Keyes has more. In North Carolina, Wisconsin Congressman Paul Ryan was getting much love from the crowd, telling them President Obama came in with so much promise, but... You know what, North Carolina? We can do better than this. Help is on the way. Former Republican presidential nominee John McCain told Fox News Sunday Ryan's an excellent choice. A man who understands the most compelling uh, challenges this nation faces, obviously, are jobs in the economy. But the president's senior campaign advisor, David Axelrod, told NBC's Meet the Press that Ryan will thrill only one set of GOP voters. The Tea Party, the social conservatives, I think it's going to be troubling to the mainstream of the American electorate. He says the president disagrees with Ryan's ideas on the direction of government. Allison Keyes, NPR News, Washington. As the Olympics draw to a close in London today, attention is switching to the legacy of the Games. NPR's Philip Reeves says Britain's prime minister wants more done to prevent children from going hungry. Cameron's spending the final afternoon of the Games hosting a hunger summit. A multitude of kids around the world haven't a hope of developing into the kind of top-class Olympians who've been displaying their skills over the past two weeks. Their chances are ruined because by the age of two, their growth and intellectual and physical potential is stunted by disease and poor diet. Experts reckon at least 170 million children are right now facing that prospect. 
Cameron's co-hosting this summit with Brazil, who are holding the 2016 Olympics. They're urging global leaders dramatically to reduce that number before the next Games begin. Philip Reeves, NPR News, London. This is NPR News in Washington. At the Olympics today in London, it is the final day of competition. A gold medal was awarded in men's basketball. The U.S. beat Spain 107-100. to Kevin Durant scored 30 points, LeBron James had 19, and Kobe Bryant added 17 for the Americans. After a spectacular landing last week, NASA's new rover remains healthy on the surface of Mars, but its science mission has yet to begin. NPR's Jim Hawk says engineers are working to finish some critical software updates. NASA's Curiosity rover is undergoing a multi-day software upgrade, deleting the landing software in favor of a version optimized for surface operations. While the rover was undergoing what NASA termed a brain transplant, Curiosity did manage to send back 79 high-definition images of its surroundings on Mars. The full-resolution color images show a landscape resembling portions of the southwestern United States. The six-wheeled Curiosity also has video footage of the landing in its computer memory, but that won't get uploaded until the new software update is verified on both the main and backup computers. Curiosity will then be ready to begin its two-year science mission. Jim Hawk, NPR News. A Sikh temple in suburban Milwaukee held a prayer service today. More than 100 people attended. It was the first service since last Sunday when a gunman walked into the temple and started firing. He killed six people before he fatally shot himself. Among those killed last week was the temple president. Witnesses say he was shot as he tried to stop the attacker. The gunman has been identified as a white supremacist. Investigators say they may never know what prompted his attack. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people. Online at wtgrantfoundation.org. Okie dokie, welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today, August 12, 2012. Our guest today, Chris Hayes, co-host, or host, excuse me, the show Up With Chris Hayes on MSNBC every Saturday and Sunday morning. He's an editor at The Nation, and he is also the author of a new book that is shooting up the bestseller charts, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy, just published by Crown Books. It's been a great year for you, Chris Hayes. Welcome to Media Matters. Thanks so much for having me on. And after I read your book, it's not as great a year for the United States of America. Um, yeah, well, I've, I mean, it's, it's been a rough decade at, at the very least. I think it's been, uh, you know, I, when you take a step back and you look at uh, what I call in the book the fail decade, it, it's, it's been a pretty bad run. And I think when you think about the conditions of the, both the 2008 presidential election and this presidential election particularly, I mean, the specter that haunts it is the specter of decline, the specter of um, dysfunction, you know, the, the, the sense that things aren't working. And uh, that, to me, is really the, the defining feature of American public life. You know, looking back at American history, is there any comparable period that you can think of? Are we in terra incognita? You know, I think there, there are some similarities, I think, in the, in the late 1960s, early 70s, um, in terms of the kind of sense in which there was a crisis of authority. And things were written about in those terms much more explicitly in the late 1960s, early 1970s. I mean, that was the topic of a lot of public debate, whereas now I think we still have we have the same phenomenon, which is this cratering trust in our pillar institutions, but we don't 
it's not the topic of, of our, our debate. Um, I think there's some, you know, there's some similarities to the late 1970s in terms of the, you know, the, the, the kind of malaise, the, the infamous uh, malaise speech that didn't use the word malaise, but the, the sense in which um, the country feels uh, adrift or, or not that functional. And there's other periods as well, although um, I think much of the, the particularities of where we are right now are, are produced, I think, by a lot of things having to do with kind of post-World War II uh, global economics and politics that it's hard to find analogs for before that period. Yeah, I mean, I was there uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, quite young then, but still uh, in the mood was, you know, there were some similarities, but the, the mood was quite different. And I think ironically quite optimistic relative mm-hmm. to the mood today in terms of what was capable of being done. Yeah, and I think that has to do with the, the, what you had. I mean, you had such vibrant social movements at the time. Um, and and so that, right now we have the kind of dissolution with the current authorities and the, and the, and the you know, frustration without necessarily uh, the, the, the vibrancy of, of, of movements that, that seem to be driving towards some alternate future. Chris Hayes, our guest, author of the new book, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy. The phone lines are open here at WILL if you want to call in and have a question or comment for Chris Hayes, who also is the host of the MSNBC program Up with Chris Hayes every Saturday and Sunday morning. You're coming up on a year anniversary for that, aren't you, Chris? Yeah, we are. In September, we uh, we, had a, we had a year, which I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, it is pretty exciting. And, um, you know, Chris, you outline in the book sort of what you call a crisis of authority, which is pretty much across the board, every major institution in the United States today, uh, which isn't an original. But what's original is you link it to this idea of an American meritocracy that emerges in the 1960 and has... Uh, deteriorated, degenerated. Uh, I'll let you explain it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, when you look at um, this record of elite failure, and you start looking naturally at how that how elites are selected and how they're formed, and the process of elite selection in the country is is you know since the 1960s is the meritocracy, and that's the name for both a, a, a social model and a set of institutions for you know, a social model in terms of how we think. Who should be in the elite, and how and then how they get there, and then the actual institutions that, that that do that process of selection. And the basic idea is, you know, coming out of the um, the, the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and second wave feminism, this this belief that we should not bar entrance to the American elite based on things like gender, race, geographical background, creed, etc. Um, that people from all walks of life and all different backgrounds are going to compete on a level playing field, and then through this kind of competitive, iterative funneling process, almost like a tournament, <laughs> they get selected down to the, the small uh, group that will you know, attain the positions of greatest influence, power, and, and remuneration. And the problem is that, that, that the idea behind it is that it's going to provide, um, you know, a certain amount of churn and social mobility that it's going to allow the, you know, if you're a bright kid who's from the Bronx, you know, you'll end up at Goldman Sachs. And if you're a oafish dullard son of a, you know, investment banker, then you, you won't just, you know, inherit your father's job. And the reality is that it just is not delivering on its core promise. I mean, we've seen during the same time that that's been a social model in America. We've seen that, um, uh, 
social mobility has actually declined. Um, you know, it's declined since over time. I mean, it's, it's, there's you have lower odds of starting out born into a household in the bottom quintile of the income distribution and working your way into the top quintile. You have a lower odds now than you did 20 or 40 years ago. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Chris, uh, of all the industrial countries, uh, we rank at the bottom or near the bottom in social mobility, and the ones that rank at the very top are the social democracies of Northern Europe. Yeah, and that part of that has to do with the fact that there's, and this is something that I, I write about in the book, is that one of the kind of conceit of, of meritocracy and the way that we think about um, social mobility and inequality is that you can separate in equality of opportunity from equality of outcomes, right? So you can say you're going to let people... You're going to allow, uh, you know, a wide disparity between rich and poor, but you're going to make sure that everyone has a shot to be rich by making sure that there's equality of opportunity. And the, the reality that we've seen both here in the States and, and comparatively is that those two are just not that divisible. Um, they, one will come to subvert the other if you have a vastly unequal society in terms of the outcomes that the, either the market produces or your criminal justice system produces or your political system produces or all three together produce, if you have huge disparities in the inequality of outcomes, that will come to subvert the mechanisms by which you attempt to provide some kind of uh, level playing field. When, Chris Hayes, did this system of modern meritocracy work at its best? Would you say the 60s and 70s into the 80s? When was it, um, let me rephrase that, when was it more possible for people who were born outside of pos positions of privilege uh, to, you know, move to the top of the uh, elite, corporate ranks, governmental, whatever, institution and society? Uh, what was the peak moment of that, would you think? I think it's beginning. I mean, I think in the 60s and 70s, I do think that there's there are certain ways in which it has succeeded in, 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 in ways in which, you know, the American elite is unquestionably more diverse than it was 40 years ago. Um, Barack Obama is the crowning glory of the meritocracy. I mean, in in every conceivable way, both you know the institutions, Columbia, Harvard Law School, that he that he is a product of, but also in the fact that there's no other period of time in American history in which it would be conceivable that a man with that name, that background, that skin color would be president of the United States. And so, the meritocracy has been successful in certain ways, and there are certain aspects of its, you know certain aspects of the vision of it that are quite noble um, and admirable. But um, I don't think it's ever quite lived. I think in some ways it's sort of bound to fail, and I'm not sure if it's ever really produced what it, it, it claimed it would. <laughs> yeah, you call that the iron law of meritocracy, is that right? Yeah, exactly. And explain that, if you would, to our listeners. Just yeah, It's the idea that I just, sort of the idea I said before, which is that you will, you will, if you create a system in which you say that, um, you know, we don't care about equality of, of, um, of outcomes, we're just going to provide a level playing field and equality of opportunity, um, that ap the inequality will just ultimately consume everything in the system, and you will end up with a set of elites who manage to figure out ways to game the system. So you won't have a level playing field. Um, you will have a system in which privilege is passed on uh, through net kinship networks or in a hereditary fashion, in which you do end up with something that looks a lot more like oligarchy, a small, sort of easily predictable 
um, tight-knit circle of people um, with a whole lot of power. And using that power to change the, the rules of the system to preserve that power and make sure that they lock themselves into power. You know, it's funny, Chris Hayes, uh, as you, you were in the book, you talk about this, and as you were talking now, uh, people who benefit by the meritocracy, President Obama, classic case, uh, who are people who rise to power who wouldn't have been able to a generation or two earlier at any other time in American history, in Obama's case, obviously, uh, but not just President Obama. But it, it seems that people who, who are beneficiaries of this uh, innately then develop, well, this system must be pretty good if I rise to the top of it, understands that I'm so talented, then this can't be that bad of a system. It sort of builds yep. in an in innate conservatism, if you will. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think it, you know, I mean, it's tempting to think that a system that has elevated to the top knew what it was doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's, gonna, who's not going to like the system? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you find this. I mean, what's interesting to me is that you don't actually get most critiques of meritocracy in its modern form come from the right, and they come from the kind of David Brooks sort of nostalgia school. Um, you don't get a lot of left liberal critiques of meritocracy. I mean, you, you, you have some, but a lot of it is that, you know, it's, I think liberals tend to think that it's kind of self-evidently how society should work, and part of that is because a lot of successful liberals, and, you know, I guess I count myself on that, <laughs> are are part of the are produced by those institutions, you know? Yeah, you know, it's funny along those lines because I know lots of people similar to you who've been successful in, uh, in that situation, to a far lesser extent uh, myself. But uh, And it's like once you've gone through the Ivy League thing and risen to the top and first in your generation to ever do that in your family's history, maybe go to college even, uh, there's a sense, well, now that I've made it, these other people who are at the same institution must be really smart too. Uh, you know, there's a deference to traditional authority that's sort of striking. Yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. And I think that one of the things that, one of the ironies here, right, is that you have, um, you, you tend to trust your fellow meritocrats. Um, yeah, and, that's the point I was getting at, I guess. Yeah, that, and, and I think that's, you know, and, and that's something that Jonathan Alter makes this point very explicitly in the, the, the book he wrote about the, the, the first year of Obama's administration, um, you know, where... Not only, you know, Barack Obama is the, the sort of central irony and tragedy of his well, tragedy might be overstating at the moment, but central irony, I would say, of his tenure is that he he basically is the crowning achievement of meritocracy at the moment the meritocracy is imploding all around us. <laughs> and at the same time that the populace has a tremendous amount of distrust in authority, um, the president, I think, is pretty disposed to actually have a fair amount of deference um, and has has kind of – he's a real institutionalist. And I talk about I talk in the book about that. But, you know, I think he, he really has kind of respect for the pillar institutions of American life. I don't think he views them as irredeemably corrupt or bankrupt. And it's, a, it's almost as if he's trying to sort of will them back into functioning through that trust. But that, I think, in some ways removes him from the – felt experience of the, the majority of Americans who feel tremendous degrees of distrust and betrayal. 
Our guest, Chris Hayes, you've just been listening to. Chris Hayes is the author of the new book, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy, just published by Crown. Chris Hayes is also the host of Up With Chris Hayes on MSNBC Cable Channel every Saturday and Sunday morning. Chris, you, um, in addition to doing the show, you write for The Nation magazine. Uh, You have a daughter who's less than a year old. How on earth did you find time to write this book? Well, I, I wrote the book... Basically, before I don't, I think it would be very hard to write the book while doing the show. Um, I finished the draft. I basically finished the manuscript, the first draft of the manuscript, a month or so before the show started, and then there was a very intense spell right after my daughter was born around Christmas of last year, in which I had to do a revision on the manuscript, and my daughter was like three weeks old and mm-hmm. doing the show. Was she colicky? Uh, she was not, actually. We were very lucky. <laughs> yeah, the, otherwise the book wouldn't exist. Yeah, exactly, or it would have gotten delayed quite a bit. Um, but, no, it's, you know, it's been a very, uh, it's, been a, it's been quite a year in terms of <laughs> juggling a bunch of these different things. But I'm very happy to be done with book tour, as much fun as I, that was, and, 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 and be back and, and uh, you know, spending time at home with her and my wife and, uh, and working on the show. And if folks want to call on to WILL with a question, the line is open at 217-333-9455 and our toll-free number 1-800-222-9455. And we do have a couple of people who have emailed questions into me, and, and I'm going to turn to those right now while we people call in if they want. Uh, and Joy from Illinois asks you, um, Chris, how can Democrats explain the subtle differences between Paul Ryan's proposed cuts to Medicare beneficiaries and the Affordable Care Act's cuts to providers? I'm sorry. You... <laughs> I, you're put on your hat as an expert in uh, medical policy. What was, what was the question again? The question is, uh, uh, Chris, how can Democrats explain the subtle differences between Paul Ryan's proposed cuts to Medicare beneficiaries right. or recipients and the Affordable Care Act's, Obamacare's, cuts to providers? Well, that the question does a pretty good job. I mean, I think people understand the difference between providers and beneficiaries. Um, and, I, you know, that's the irony, of course, is going to be the, the through-the-looking-glass world we're about to enter is one in which there's a debate about who's cutting Medicare the most. Um, and, you know, people forget that the way the Tea Party came to power in 2010 was running against the, quote, $500 billion cut to Medicaid, a Medicare that was represented by the Affordable Care Act, and that worked that time around. But I do think that this is one of those places where the the reputational capital that's been built up by a political coalition or party matters a great deal. And if the battle is who is, I think people understand which party they should trust on that core issue. What, what's your sense of November right now? Um, and I, I don't want to get into the lame thing of just prognosticating, but what's the sort of campaign do you anticipate? Um, what's your sense of the mood of the populace? You know, it's a pretty dispirited mood. Um, I think, you know, it's a combination of that kind of fear of decline and frustration with the status quo that, you know, the co- I mean, the country is not in great shape and the economy is really not in great shape. And it's sort of remarkable to me, in fact, how, you know, absent a jobs agenda seems from the campaign. Um, but that's sort of that's kind of another point. I think you know. I think it's going to be brutally close. Actually, I think it's. Um, you know, there's structural reasons why it's going to be brutally close because it remains, in certain ways, something of a 50-50 nation. Um, but 
I think it's going to be brutally close, and I think that, you know, ultimately the, the, the president will prevail just because I think that's the advantage of incumbency, and I think the, uh, the, the, the political team they have is quite good, and, and, and the record is actually quite good or good enough to carry him over the hump at a time when the actual conditions of the country would, would make, it, make re-election a challenge. And we have another question for you, Chris Hayes, uh, via email. This is from Portland, Maine, and it asks, Chris, what is your opinion on the U.S. track record on indefinite detentions and global surveillance of pre-crime? Um, <laughs> this is our Ask Chris Hayes uh, show. Yeah. Any question on American politics, so, email it in. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I think uh, indefinite detention both the kind that was exposed uh, during the Bush administration and, you know, there's different kinds of indefinite detention that exist right now um, under U.S. supervision in other countries. Um, I, you know, I'm, let me say this, um, the, the area, I, I'm, I'm not a civil liberties, uh, civil um national security reporter i don't report actively on on civil liberties issues which isn't to say we don't we we discuss them on the show all the time um and we have people on but you know it's this really difficult area to um to report on because of the insane growth of secrecy uh in the last 10 years and a growth in secrecy that has been preserved and expanded by this administration and that has made just even getting, you know, the necessary precondition to debates about policy is to have a set of facts on the table. And it's kind of remarkable to just compare something like, you know, when we're having these budget fights, we're all at least dealing with public information. The CBO estimates are all public. When you have debates about policy having to do with the things like indefinite detention uh, abroad or drone strikes and kill lists, you know, the maddening fact is that the, the, the public record is just so incomplete. And when it is filled in, often it's filled in because of someone in power having an agenda to give out the information. So it's very hard to have. I, I always find myself sort of frustrated and bewildered um, in even trying to assemble the, the necessary information as a precondition to having the debate. You know, Chris says in the book, you talk about the crisis of authority, uh, how all institutions are really... Um, uh, awash in degrees of corruption that are uh, unusual for generations, if not ever. And just your comments then made me think of where does the military and secrecy and national security, where does it fit into this picture where all these other institutions are, you know, um, you know, in crisis? Well, the military is the most trusted institution in American life by far. Um, and I think that's uh, sort of a fascinating window into where we are. I mean, I think there's a variety of reasons. Um, one is that, you know, we've ostensibly been at war for a decade. I mean, we've definitely been at war for a decade in a very dis- dis- distinct sense in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, but the broader war on terror. And so I don't think it's, um, I think, across different cultures that esteem for the military um, uh is often connected to people's sense of being directly threatened. I think um, other institutions have performed so poorly, the military looks good in, you know, in, in comparative terms. 
And I also think, you know, and I don't write about this book. I started to write about it and sort of gone back and forth and thought about it more. You know, the military is an institution that, for whatever um, its institutional flaws, and there are, you know, many um, and, and, and can be listed in all sorts of ways, um, it also embodies a vision that's quite different than the kind of um, vision of radical inequality that is the vision of, of American social life elsewhere. I mean, there's a kind of, within the military, there is um, much less social distance between different members of it than there is in American society at large. And I think that there's something about that that, that it, it sort of it feels orthogonal to the way that American life is ordered in, in the 21st century in every other way. And I think makes people. It seems like an alternate model that 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 seems attractive to people. Our guest, Chris Hayes, author of the new book *Twilight of the Elites: America After Meritocracy*, published by Crown Books. Chris Hayes also is the host of *Up with Chris Hayes* on MSNBC Saturday and Sunday mornings. The number here at Media Matters two one seven three three three. 9455, our toll-free number, 1-800-222-9455. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Let's go to our phone lines right now. Line 1, Champaign County, you're on the air. Hi. I don't. I really don't understand the basic premise of this. Uh, the meritocracy, I don't believe, ever exists. We've had an old boys network and, and, and government by connections. Uh, you give a Barack Obama's presidency as some kind of example of the triumph, and um, I just... You know, it's not true. It seems to me, uh, I, 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 anybody Romney and Ryan, but Barack Obama was a very conventional state senator in a lot of ways. He was called a senator from Exelon when he was state senator, and I don't know if you know Illinois politics, but the Jerry and Jim Ryan sex scandal that had him running against the buffoon Alan Keyes yeah. was a lot of the serendipity of how he got elected. To sure. The Senate. So I, I lived in I actually lived in Illinois and Chicago for six years. I covered I covered that race um, pretty closely. So um, I, I don't think the the the, the point is less um, whether he's conventional or not. I think is not is sort of parallels with the point about the fact that someone of his background being the position he, he, in it, he is in is a, is a distinct feature of the nature of how the American elite are selected right now. Um, I just think it's not plausible to think that he would have been elected in 1940 or 1960. Um, and I think that has to do with um, the way that what you call the old boys networks has have changed. I mean, I, I just think if you look at who occupies positions of authority in American life, it is very white and very male, or is disproportionately white and disproportionately male and, and even disproportionately wasp, but far less than it was 20 or 40 years ago. Caller, do you want to follow up? I guess we, the caller hung up to, to listen to your uh, sterling words, Chris. You know, in the book, Chris, you talk at some length about this notion of elites and how the right wing and the left wing have different understandings of elites and the relationship of elites in our culture to the 1%, the common term for those who own the country. Um, Claire, what's your take on this? What, what, what are elites and what's their relationship to the people who you know, own all the businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the right has managed to appropriate the word elite in a really uh, 
effective and insidious way, but also just a, a really misleading way and, and, and kind of redefine the word as describing people that have a set of certain cultural attributes or consumer preferences and drive Priuses and live in San Francisco and things like that, um, as opposed to the, the traditional meaning of the word, which is relative. I mean, it's, it's contested because any sufficiently, you know, con- complex concept will, will be contested, but it's, it's not really been that contested in the sense that, you know, what the elite means as being a, a small, a relatively small group of people with a disproportionate influence over society's direction, that that has been the the way that that the term has been understood for most of the, you know, several hundred years that people have been writing about elites in the, in the modern context, um, and I think part of the project of the book is just reclaiming that. And, you know, you talk in the book about the common ground of outsiders, uh, insurgents, uh, the Tea Party on one side, the Occupy movement on the other side. Uh, explain explain what you're thinking is there, your argument there, because, you know, to put it into context, on this program we've had guests over the last year uh, who have dismissed that as ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the uniting theme for the... The, the frustration people have it is a sense of betrayal and a sense that the game is not square and that the, the rules are, are, are rigged. Um, and I think that's, you know, the game is rigged is a phrase I've heard a lot and I've heard from Tea Party people and from Occupy people. Now, obviously, there are these huge ideological and some sort of tribal differences between these different coalitions. And they may, in fact, be unbridgeable, and they may not even be something that is worthwhile to attempt to bridge. But I also think that, you know, if you look through American history, the the, lot, the contours of how the politics are defined change, and the nature of the political coalitions change, and they're not set in stone, they're not fixed, essential. Um, they don't, they're not essential in the, in the sense that they kind of grab something that is inherently out there in the world. They're the product of what issues are most important and what kind of different coalitions of interest form. I mean, if you look at prohibition or you look at reconstruction, you get very different coalitions. And it, it just seems possible to me that there are different coalitions imaginable in American politics. You know, do you see some evidence, and, and I'm not asking this either rhetorically or facetiously, but earnestly, um, that in the Tea Party movement, which granted began, say, in 2009, and a big part of its opening salvo was this uh, campaign against corruption and bailouts and uh, I think a sort of message that resonated well with people who weren't on the political right. Uh, And then it seemed like almost in a nanosecond, the Koch brothers moved in and it became a campaign to lower taxes on billionaires first and foremost. And the whole thing about corruption got sort of thrown right out the window and never heard from again, except maybe in some rhetorical manner that had nothing to do with reality. Um, yeah. Are there some? Am I missing something? Because uh, to make this case, I'd love to see some examples of. You know, well, actually, in Kentucky, there's some Tea Party section that you know is trying to you know, do something different. No, I mean, I think I think that's more or less right. I mean, part of it also, I think, has to do with the fact that, like, at the end of the day, the Tea Party are conservatives, like, <laughs> and they're conserv like that's it's just a name for folks that are conservative, and they were people who, you know. Uh, are much more religious than the people who aren't Tea Party. They, like, have, you know, they dislike welfare more than the average vote. I mean, they just fit all the profiles of conservatives. Mm-hmm. So 
But I do think that they're, cons- that they're conservatives who are refracting the reality of institutional failure through their own personal prison. Um, and I think, you know, there were some... If the failure is big enough, it, that, can, that can change the way people think about what they trust and what they don't trust. And, I, you know, you wonder if it, in those moments, clo- it's the moments closest to the failures where that kind of overlap seems most possible, right? Mm-hmm. Chris, in the book, uh, Twilight of the Elites, that we're talking about, your new book with Crown Books, uh, in the book you have, if I, someone told, if I started reading the book and if someone told me what the book was about, I never would have expected, you know, long, relatively lengthy discussions of the steroids crisis in baseball. Mm-hmm. Or the the sex scandals and crises in the Catholic Church. Uh, how do they tie into your thesis? Yeah, I mean the, the steroids in baseball is sort of is is really a, a perfect little microcosm of a very fundamental principle that 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 I sort of interrogate in the book, which is that it turns out to be harder than it looks to create a system with high rewards for performance that isn't also a system with high rewards for cheating. And this is the case in Major League Baseball, which is Major League Baseball really is a meritocracy, right? It is a place where people's background or, you know, uh, doesn't matter very much. Um, you know, if you're a 19-year-old kid from the Dominican Republic who doesn't speak English, but you can throw a fastball, you're going to, you know, get paid a lot of money. And and they have punishment for failure. If you're doing, if you're an aging slugger who's doing that, you get benched. And what the steroid scandal in baseball illustrates is that it's, it just it turns out that if you create a system with really high rewards for performance and punishment for failure and you know some, something that looks like a perfect meritocracy, you also create very ripe conditions for, for, for cheating and an epidemic of cheating. And that's, I think, a really important point, not because of cheating in Major League Baseball is such a big deal, but because actually a lot of American life is increasingly structured that way, American institutions, Enron was structured in that way, Wall Street is very self-consciously structured as kind of a perfect meritocracy in which people are constantly being evaluated on their performance and, and, and given huge bonuses for performance, and it's not surprising then that we, that we see such, an, such endemic cheating. And I mean, and the point you make in the book, and I think it's central to the argument, is that the cheating not only is growing, it's not only rampant and prevalent, but it's, for those at the top, it's no longer punished. That's right, and 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 one of the things you see from Major League Baseball is that if you don't, you know, if you don't, if if the only thing you have to stop cheating is that that a norm against cheating is actually much more powerful than a rule, but norms when they go go very quickly, <laughs> and so what you've seen is this kind of degradation of the norms, particularly on Wall Street, and. You know, once they go, you need to have rules or, or, or some sort of institutional reform. Otherwise, you're just going to have, you know, disaster. And where does the Catholic Church uh, sex scandals come into play? Well, for me, the Catholic Church is a great illustration of the, the concept of social distance, as I call it in the book, which is the, just the, the vast distance between elites and, uh, you know, decision makers and the people who those dis- decisions affect. And when you try to solve the mystery of how it was that the church could have done what it did, um, the the only real answer is the fact that the bishops were so removed um, from the lives of their parishioners, and they felt they felt solidarity with the the, the, the predators rather than the prey. Um, 
and and that to me is a really it's a really key point um, to, to to illustrate because I think you know the evil that was allowed to happen in the church is is inevitable product of an institutional setup in which the people who make decisions in this case the bishops are not embedded in the same world as the people that those decisions affect. Our guest Chris Hayes uh, is joining us live on the phone lines on the phone today. So if you want to call in to Media Matters and have a question or comment for Chris, uh, the number two one seven three 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 nine four five five, our toll free number, is eight hundred two 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 nine four five five. And we have another email, Chris, that came in to the Ask Chris Hayes About Anything uh, show today. Uh, is there? This is from Ventura, California. Is there a Mormon economic political agenda? And should the media play a role in covering it during the election? I have no idea. Oh, come on, Chris. You're, you, this is like open season today. Any question? <laughs> I've had no guests who could answer this, so that I guess they figure Chris Hayes, TV star, Cam. Um, I don't know enough about the uh, economic theology of the Church of Latter-day Saints to answer that question. I will say one thing on the inside baseball to get at this. You know, Harry Reid is a Mormon. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's some sort of, you know, because he seems to take particular de- delight in thrashing George Romney yeah. or Mitt Romney, uh, if there's some backstory there. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, and also with the with, with all the, um, the the speculation about the the, the taxes and such, um, I do know that you know Mormons. There's been some interesting reporting about just Mormons. Pretty much, kind of quietly and behind the scenes, really mobilizing behind the candidacy, which is not surprising, obviously, if you know, um, a uh, you know, uh, Greek American was at the head of a ticket that I think the Greek American community would mobilize for them, and or, or a Jewish American at the top of the ticket, you'd see the same thing. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. One thing that is interesting, though. Um, you know, let's say that Dennis Kucinich got the Democratic nomination or Bernie Sanders or someone, and he was a Mormon. Either of them were Mormon. Uh, I wonder if in the sort of evangelical circles that would suddenly become a much larger issue than it apparently is now. It's just, you know, yeah. idle thought of the day here. Um, you know. Hey, Bob, I'm, I'm really sorry to do this. I know that I'm slated for the hour. Actually, something my. I have to go uh, attend to my daughter. <laughs> uh, this, can you come back, or is this going to be a, a full throttle? Uh, can I give me five minutes and just to attend to her? I'm really sorry to do that. That's this. quite all right. We fully understand, Chris, and thank you for your time. We'll, we'll wait for you if we can. I'll let my producer know your status if there's any other problems, okay? Awesome. Thank you, Bob. Sure thing, Chris. That was Chris Hayes, who's joining us, and obviously he's taking time out of his Sunday, and he has a daughter who is uh, nine months old, Ryan, who he's tending to in Brooklyn, his apartment. And uh, we are therefore free here. We'll wait for Chris to call back, uh, hopefully in five minutes, and if not, we will probably just uh, conclude the hour uh, with some music. But in the meantime, if people want to call in with questions or comments uh, to talk about anything, uh, suggestions for possible guests, the works. The lines are open at 217-333-9455 and the toll-free line open at 1-800-222-9455. Chris Hayes, of course, our guest who just had to leave us, hopefully briefly, to attend his daughter, uh, is the author of the new book, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy, and he is also uh, the host of Up With Chris Hayes on MSNBC every Saturday and Sunday morning in uh, coming weeks we have some guests lined up for you 
Uh, next week, we have uh, Amy Goodman, who will be our live guest. And Amy often joins us on our Pledge Drive shows. She's very gracious about coming on air to try to implore you to send money into WILL. And uh, we'd like to get her on periodically for a live show so she can just talk to you about journalism, politics, and the work she does that I know uh, many of you are, are keenly interested in. So it should be a terrific show. We're really looking forward to it. Two weeks from today, uh, we will have a, a recorded show. Uh, yes, we'll, we have an evergreen show we call it, one of our greatest hits. And um, uh, it will be the show Hot Coffee, which is, I think, one of the favorite shows I've ever done here. One of the pleasures of doing Media Matters is when I get to cover a topic that hasn't been talked about much anywhere else with an author who's uh, or, or a public figure who hasn't really gotten a great deal of attention and uh, Hot Coffee uh, was one of those shows. The guest was a, a lawyer who made a documentary uh, about public injury law and how it's been crushed out by commercial and corporate interest and reduced and what a loss that has been uh, for American people. One of the key weapons they had to protect their interest against uh, corporate power had been lost to them. And... Um, you know, so that's a show, if you didn't hear it the first time a year ago, you're going to really love the show. It's absolutely eye-opening. Uh, I want to go back to our phone lines now. We've got someone who's taken us up on the offer to join us on the air. Line 1, Urbana, you're on the air. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment, and perhaps you could comment on this, too, but as I was listening to this conversation, that it seems like the conservative right wing has done such a good job of convincing the average person that we can't punish those who've been successful by taxing them. And we don't look at, at least, you know, the conservatives, the Tea Partiers, et cetera, don't look at how um, government benefits have allowed these people to be successful. Like even the Tea Partiers, I think of where would these people be without things like Social Security or Medicare that help take care of their parents, their grandparents? Um, and so I just, I think, you know, the, like I said, the right just does such a good job of doing this propaganda campaign so we don't look at those issues. And maybe you can comment on that. Well, thank you, caller. Well, you know, I think this was become an issue in the presidential campaign uh, in the last few weeks, as President Obama made a comment roughly to the effect that no one got rich without the support of the infrastructure the government creates and the, and the, and the education system and all the various other uh, public sector uh, provisions that make it possible for someone even to make money in the first place. And uh, famously, Bill Gates Sr., the father of Bill Gates, said, you know, the only reason Bill Gates existed, uh, was able to make the gazillion dollars he's made, is that he grew up in the United States who had all sorts of uh, structures in place that made it possible for Bill Gates Jr. to get so wealthy. And that had been born in most of the other country, it would have been impossible. And Bill Gates's talent did not sort of ride roughshod over everything else. He required having a, a public sector and an infrastructure to make it possible. And that has become a highly contentious point at the Republican Party. Uh, now with Paul Ryan just making this comment uh, yesterday and today, in fact, uh, sort of taking aim at that as being a sign that uh, the President Obama doesn't have sufficient appreciation for entrepreneurs and uh, claims government does everything. Uh, a misreading, I think, of the President's comments. And it's worth noting that the President took those comments from Elizabeth Warren, 
who made them in her race for U.S. Senate uh, in Massachusetts a few months ago, and it became viral on the Internet and extremely well embraced by the liberal community, which was glad to hear someone forcefully make that argument really for the first time uh, in, in public by a major figure because uh, there's so much deference generally to business and entrepreneurs that even to make that argument was considered fairly radical. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters on WILLAM 580. We've only got about 11 minutes, 10, 11 minutes left in the show. Our guest today is Chris Hayes, the host of the show Up with Chris Hayes on MSNBC every uh, Saturday and Sunday morning. And Chris is the author of a new book, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy. We've been talking about it for the full hour. Chris is also the father of a lovely young daughter, Ryan, and he has had to leave the show momentarily to tend to her. And uh, unfortunately, we now hear that the situation is such Chris will not be back on the air with us. Um, we're going to keep the phone lines open if people want to call in with questions or comments or recommendations for potential guests. Uh, anything goes. It's open lines now for the next 10 minutes here at Media Matters. I'm Bob McChesney. The number 217-333-9455. Uh, or our toll-free number, 1-800-222-9455. And feel free, uh, if you wish, to uh, email your comments or questions in, too. Uh, and we're going to give you a list as soon as my producer gets it to me uh, via email. Uh, we will get a list of upcoming guests and some of the future shows to you as well. Uh, and uh, we've got a number of people lined up for September. Some really terrific shows that uh, Christina Williams my producer has been working on. So it's, it's an exciting lineup we've got uh, going into the fall. And again, I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters, and you're listening to WILL AM 580 here in beautiful Urbana, Illinois. Um, you know, we've been doing the show now. Uh, I just, for a number of reasons, went back and looked at the records. This is, we've done just about 500 shows exactly, original shows. A number get played over, but we do just under 50 a year. Uh, and then now we've been on the air now for 10 years and oh, four or five months. Uh, so it's been a long run here at WILL, and it's been a fantastic experience for me. Uh, the station has been exceptionally supportive, so it's been a great honor for me to have a station that has stood behind me, allowed me to do a type of programming here that I think you only hear me talk about on pledge drives, but now I've got this opportunity, I'll do it here, a type of programming that you simply, you know, no other NPR station, to my knowledge, uh, embraces or certainly open the doors to have it. Uh, WILL has taken a chance with me, uh, initially with Jay Pierce, and now with uh, uh, the people who have come since then, the subsequent managers here at the station, uh, have really stood behind me at every turn all the way. If the type of programming we're doing in this show, they've, they've made it possible for this programming to exist. And... I know how important the show is to a lot of people. I, I get the emails. I, I get comments from folks when I'm walking around. And most strikingly, and I think this is a comment on the Internet, uh, when I travel, and I'm not just only on the East or West Coast or anywhere in the United States, but even when I'm outside of the United States, I find that the listenership uh, extends globally thanks to the Internet, thanks to podcasting. And that people, and we hear, see it from the phone calls we get into the program. We've got just today, we've got uh, California uh, and New York uh, each came in uh, with uh, questions uh, for our guest. So, um, we do have another phone call. Let's go to that now. I'm Bob McChesney. Let's go to line one, Urbana. You're on Media Matters. Uh, hi. Hello. I, I was intrigued by the earlier old boys comment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really wanted to ask Mr. Hayes about this. I'm disappointed he's not going to be able to come back. But I can do my Chris Hayes impersonation. 
yeah, we're going to shoot it at you then. So, you know, I kind of feel like there's a sense, there's a real reverse discrimination against white males in the modern meritocracy. But on the other hand, you know, there's the disproportionate demographics of the 1% really seem to say otherwise. So I was kind of interested in any insight or comments on, on where this sense of this reverse discrimination comes from, because I don't, you don't really see it. So I don't know, I'm just interested in any comments on that. Well, that's what I really would like Chris to handle. I think he, yeah, could, I know. he would do a far better job of that, I think, that, than I could possibly do. Uh, and I don't even want to take a stab at that. I would do injustice to Chris's argument if I were to take, take a, a stab at that. Uh, I do think, you know, he, uh, you know, he's on to something that's very important about the fact that all sorts of uh, ethnic groups that have been precluded, uh, African-Americans, Latinos, Jews, really, until the 1950s or 60s, uh, from positions of great power in the United States, there's been some entry, uh, and, and that's something probably that's commendable. But then I think the point that one of the callers made earlier is also worth noting, which is, you know, the President Obama's viewpoints, his politics are entirely mainstream, uh, at least in that caller's opinion. It wasn't that he brought in a uh, something that went outside of what the conventional range of politics in this country, or at least hasn't since he's been a president. He might have run on something different. A lot of people would argue that. Um, so, you know, I, I wish again that I'd let Chris were here because he's really thought a lot more about that issue than I have. So I'll leave it at that point. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines again. Sh- line three, Champaign County, you're on the air. Hi. Well, I'm, it's unfortunate they had to go, but a uh, good cause and um, it got me an opportunity to follow up on. Yeah, I'm sorry we had to you... cut you off. Well, I, I, yeah, I was gone. I, 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 it, line went dead, so oh. I, um, I didn't mean to, to leave, um, though I know it's important to have a lot of different voices on and all that. But um, the person that wrote about the comparing the Medicaid cuts and Medicare cuts uh, between Obama and uh, it's true what he said, but what I what I have a problem with, and I'm a single payer uh, supporter, or something along that line, um, that how can one how can the Democrats uh, convincingly argue against the voucher system for Medicaid and Medicare patients, which is what the Ryan plan is, when they're basically doing the same thing for the uninsured? I mean, we're we're giving you some money and you can pass it off to a private health insurer. Um, and it's a way of subsidizing the health insurance industry. And uh, the voucher system that he wants to use in terms of, uh, uh, you know, reforming Medicare and Medicaid is really what's being offered for the uninsured. And so it just, there's just a very strong disconnect. I never hear it discussed, so I wanted to bring it up. Uh, as far as a guest, uh, Nan Rubin, Prometheus, uh, she was here for the Grassroots Radio Conference. And mm-hmm. She could talk about Prometheus projects, and she could also do some kind of a recap of the grassroots radio conference, even though it was so big and so, uh, there's no way that anyone can recap it. Uh, well, you know, while I've got you in the line, two things uh, stay with this view for a second. Line three, um, I think a lot of our listeners will recognize this caller. Uh, we call him Champaign County. I don't. I guess I don't. You're off in those woods, I guess. And uh, you, you call almost every week, and your questions are almost uniformly really smart. And uh, I just want to thank you. Uh, I never had this opportunity. Well, I'm, uh, for I'm calling glad in. I have the opportunity. I, I, I get to raise issues that uh, I really think are being left uh, left on the um, by the wayside of the contemporary media, and uh, there's so, so many important things that impinge upon what you were. Um, 
Well, our guests oftentimes say to me after the show, or they, Bob, we got some great questions online. And, and I've noted that usually the best shows we have are, are call-in shows where I get lots of questioners. Uh, and um, your question, you're, you call almost every week, and I, I please continue to do so. It's oh. really... I'm listening to the replays on Focus 580 now, and I feature my, I seem to be featured quite frequently there as well. And uh, I don't think that you really would take on another couple of hours, but uh, maybe you could do a Friday roundup. Well, I think <laughs> this, is a, this is a challenge for me, as is, unfortunately. Right, I understand. Uh, uh, the, the time commitment that it is, and I do enjoy And one of the reasons I do enjoy the show is people like you and all the other regular callers and then the new callers who call in. But it, it, this is a show that was meant to be and is meant to be caller-driven. I, I do recorded shows periodically. Uh, I don't enjoy them anywhere near as much as when listeners have an opportunity to call in and directly ask the questions they have. Well, and now, now, what was your question again? I've already lost track of... Uh, well, I just... Um, well, it wasn't so much a question. It was the idea that the person said, what about the health care reform? In, in terms oh, yeah. Of I think your point's well taken. And, yeah. and I wish Chris Hayes were here and able to respond. I know this is an issue he has actually... Uh, given a bit of thought to both on his show, uh, especially in his show and in his writings. Um, and I think your point's well taken. I think, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, that this health care issue is so confusing for many Americans is that the Obama reform package is unclear to most Americans what exactly it entails. And it's so it's, it's, a, it's a very amorphous issue for people. It doesn't stand a lot of scrutiny, I'm afraid, because when you start talking about how much money is going to be dumped into the healthcare industries, and I thought they got rid of health savings accounts, which is a real pernicious part of what the current healthcare system, and it's actually, um, and this is rarely talked about, it's actually undermining the current health um, health insurance industry. What these people, this is the basic is, people who have money who don't want to, have, they just want to buy a high deductible uh, insurance system. So for for real bad situations, they're they're well enough off, but they are allowed to put money in these health savings accounts, and it's another way to shelter their their money from from tax, and it also undermines the health insurance industry. And I think this is in some ways a bailout of them. Uh, they want all these extra people, and we're we're spending government money. Well, you're now, convincing me we need to do something on this uh, probably before election day. It'd be great to have a show on this issue, especially as if it becomes part of the political debate. But, you know, Champaign County, I've got to go to our last caller. Oh, great, great. Thank Thanks you again lot. for calling. Media, talking. media Matters, by the way. Can't somebody fund that like the Knight Foundation? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to our last caller now. Line 4, Bloomington, Illinois. You're on the air. producer said she could answer my question. So I, what I have to say is, uh, yes, I enjoy your frequent calls that just hung up, and I really, really appreciate your program. I listen every, almost as well. I may miss a time or two, but I love your program, and I love what you do. I've read your books, and I heard the hot coffee. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, you know, I can't thank you enough for your kind words. They mean everything to me and to my producer, Christina Williams. And on that note, I'm afraid to hear the band tuning up in the background, which means they want to clear us out of the studio. Uh, I want to thank Kyle Croha, my engineer, and everyone at WILL. And remember, one week from today, 167 hours, we will be back with Amy Goodman. Until then, everyone, have a great week.
Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. In the weather forecast for today, increasing cloudiness, the high around 82. Tonight, mostly cloudy and warmer, a chance of showers and isolated thunderstorms after midnight. Tonight's low, 62. Tomorrow, showers likely in the morning, then a chance of showers in the afternoon, isolated thunderstorms possible, the high, 82.